0: All right. Well, you know that uh, we are finishing off our series, Stranger Kings. It's been a... I know. (laughs) Obviously, one of the themes has been strange. And so today we're going to do a few different things. Uh, If you saw the video, it said today we're going to talk about strange armies. Change the theme a little bit, and it's going to be more around strange desperation. The other strange thing we're going to do is we're going to fly kites indoors. Not all of us, some of us. Um, so if you are a kid or a parent or if you just really like kite flying, I have 10 kites that I would like to hand out. So who would want a kite? And later on, we are going to attempt to fly kites indoor, which is strange. I've got Avengers and I've got Star Wars. I'm, Avengers. Avengers. Star Wars. I'm Avengers. Avengers or Star Wars? Yeah, yeah, you can have it. I think there'll be plenty. Come on. Do we have any kite flying aficionados? Star Wars or Avengers? Fine. Take one for your friend. I don't want to take them home. Herda loves flying kites. I'll give it to Al, seeing as how he put his hand up. I got one more kite. Benny, Benny. Ben! Oh, Ben, you look serious. You look like you fly kites on a regular basis. Like, is this beneath you? This? That was on sale at Walmart. It's, it was a good deal. So you go ahead and build your kite. If you need to go to the back. I, I didn't think this through a lot. But if you need to go to, like, the back where there's more space to do that. And, and, and I literally only have two fans. Um, but we're going to see if we can make this work. So, back to Elisha. A common theme throughout our series has been people getting themselves into desperate situations and then God taking and using the prophet Elijah in these strange ways to bring about a revelation of who he is and how he's working in the Israelites' life. And in the end, we've been left, actually, because our preachers have done such a good job. We have been actually left with a sense of, okay, that was weird, but I can connect the dots, and I can understand and see what God was trying to accomplish. Right? Like like a floating axe head just on its own doesn't make sense to anybody or anything. But the way Mike unpacked it for us and stuff, we got the gist of it. Different miracles like that. But what happens when your desperate circumstance is not just the need to recover an axe head from the bottom of a river? What happens when your desperate circumstance takes you and pushes you to the limits of your faith and your humanity? Most of us have or will be there at some point in our lives. Even though we live in the most beautiful place in the world, one of the wealthiest places in the world, where we have everything at our disposal, most of us who have life, some life experience know that we will probably come to a place or a point in life where circumstances will push us to the brink and we will question whether or not we think God is active. We'll question whether or not we think, is he real anymore? Does he care anymore? can I really do this anymore? We'll wonder about those things. The scene that we're going to find today in 2 Kings chapter 6 is one of those scenes. It's a story filled with despair. It's a story filled with horror. It's a story filled with um, murder, or I guess technically manslaughter. Well, no, murder and manslaughter. It's got some gruesome stuff in it. In fact, the Israelites... Um, life scenes change so dramatically that their landscape becomes practically unrecognizable. But it is also a story of God's faithfulness. And it is a story of God intervening and providing hope and provision. And so for any of us who maybe right now are are faced with challenges and difficulties in life where we're being stretched out of our comfort zones and to the point where we're wondering, can I keep doing this? Does God really care? Then this is the kind of story that's for us. And you see on the screen, full disclosure, for any of you looking around, parents, this is PG stuff, okay? You're gonna, you, if your kids hear certain verses, you're going to have to talk to them afterwards and just remind them that you don't plan on carrying out the things that you hear, <laughs> although one parent who remains nameless said that they might use this tactic to uh, bring their children in line, but it was a it was a humorous joke at the time. Anyways, we'll get there. You'll see what we're talking about when we get there. Let's jump into Second Kings. You can open up your scriptures, your Bibles, your devices to Second Kings chapter six, and we're going to focus in on verse 24, and then all the way to the end of chapter 7. So 2 Kings 6, 24. Some time later, King Ben-Hadad of Aram mustered his entire army. So this is the same guy who tried to previously, on numerous occasions, take out the Israelites. He's, he's, and Elisha uh, warned the king and all that kind of stuff. So if you were with us during the summer, you would have uh, heard these stories. But this time he lays a siege on Samaria. And as a result, there's this great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that donkey's head sold for 80 pieces of silver and a cup of dove's dung sold for five pieces of silver. Now, we get those two pieces of information to tell us how desperate the situation is. The Jews aren't even supposed to eat donkey meat. Donkeys were deemed unclean. And yet now... The head of the donkey, which I'm assuming has the least amount of edible meat around it, is selling for this incredible price. And a cup of dove's dung, which isn't actually, at least theologians and commentators don't think it was actually dove's dung, they actually think it was uh, a a type of grain, uh, and that this is a slang for it, is selling for this price. So so it's kind of like the equivalent of today, we say, uh, let's go get some grub. We're not talking about those little grubs that crawl around in the jungle and are disgusting. We use that as a slang for, or we take home a doggy bag. That's not because we think that the food that we just ate at the restaurant is only good enough for a dog, and let's go bring it to the dog, right? So we have these slang words as well. That's what they're talking about, they think, in this scenario. But it's, again, describing the desperate times that the Israelites find themselves in. So one day during the during the war during this siege that the king of Aram is uh, waging against the Israelites, one day the king of Israel is walking along the wall of the city, and a woman calls to him and says, "Please help me, my lord, the king." And the king answers, "If the Lord doesn't help you, what can I do? I don't have food from the threshing floor. I don't have wine from the press to give you." But then the king asks the question, "What's the matter?" And this, parents, you might want to cover your kid's ears. One, uh, she replied, the woman said to me, this woman said to me, come on, let's eat your son today, and then we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we actually cooked my son and ate him. Then the next day I said to her, now go and kill your son so we can eat him, but she's hidden her son. When the king heard this, he tore his clothes in despair. You think? So they are going from, we're hungry, we're going to commit sin and eat donkey meat. We don't have anything else left. And now they've gone to a a horrible, uh, to us, unexplicable place. It's actually not the only place in the Old Testament that this is referred to. In Deuteronomy chapter 28 Verses 54 and 56, it actually says this. The most, it, it describes the people who will do this. It says the most tender hearted man, the most tender and delicate woman will do this because they have rebelled against God. In Ezekiel chapter 5 verse 10, it says that this same judgment uh, will be, is prophesied over those who walk away from God. Now this is not God saying, this is what I want to have happen. This is God saying in uh, the Old Testament that when people walk away from me, when they cut the cord and decide that they don't need me, I can't protect them from their human depravity. And that's how ugly our human depravity can be, that we would actually devour each other There's another place in the Old Testament where it says not only that parents will eat their children, children will eat their parents. This stuff happened. And then right here in Elijah's time, it's happening again. So Samaria is under siege. And this is not actually a picture of Samaria um, at the time, but it gives you an idea of what a walled city would look like. And so you can, you can actually picture, especially at the top there, in that very top, you see some scaffolding there. You can picture the king walking around, and he's looking down over his people, his kingdom, and he's think, and they are starving to death. No supplies get in. You see that in the past, the king of Aram used sort of full-on frontal assaults, and he was thwarted. This time, he, he, he decides, I'm going to play the long game. We're not going to go straight at the gates. We're simply going to encamp around the wall and we're going to wait. No supplies get in. Nobody gets out. Eventually, they're going to starve. Eventually, they're going to get desperate and they're going to do things that they wouldn't normally do and that's our time to jump in. And as we just read, this sense of desperation when taken to its ultimate, ultimate place, usually takes humanity to places of self-preservation. Now, we don't, we, we don't get that. Because we, ha- we just, we're not there. We don't live in that kind of a place where we would think that. But emotionally and mentally and stress-wise, we do go to places of self-preservation. And we do hurt other people around us in different ways. Because of that. Well, they've gone to an extreme place where the physical desperation has taken them. And the king's got nothing left for them. He's saying, look, I can't help you. I've got no food. I don't have any wine to give you. Nothing. If God can't help you, I can't help you. Imagine the the strain and the pressure these people are under. This has been going on for a long time now. It takes a while to eat out all your supplies, right? This didn't just happen overnight. And then the king hears this from this woman. And she's not even in anguish over having done what she did. She is ticked off because the other woman didn't hold up her end of the bargain. She's in complete and utter self-preservation mode. It's probably the most bleakest and horrific scene in the Old Testament. I like how um, Bruxy Cavey in his book, if you haven't read this, this is a good book, Reunion. Many of you have re- read it, I know. I like how he describes this state for us of what is it like when we get to that place. He says, remember... We're designed to live in love and in relationship with God. Divine love is a spiritual air we're meant to breathe every moment of our existence. Once we begin to believe the lie that God has gone, that God is distant, that we're outside of the realm of his care, we may begin to make choices out of panic and self-preservation rather than out of love. We can't blame people like Eve for her anxiety-influenced choice to take matters into her own hands and eat the fruit, or the woman who chose to eat her own son. He says we do the same thing all the time. When we mistakenly perceive that God is absent in our lives, we take matters into our own hands and we fight for our own survival at the cost of connectedness. The serpent tempted our ancestors as he tempts us today to walk away from the love life of God, relationship with God, to pursue our own separate and separated existence. We chose then, as we often choose now, to forge our own path and put self ahead of all else. We choose autonomy over intimacy. And ever since, human mankind has experienced a kind of spiritual dislocation or disorientation, like a kite that yanks away from the one holding onto it in the name of freedom, only to spiral downward to the dirt. Human sin has led us to the results that were, as we just read, and are catastrophic. So let's see if we can fly a kite. Indoors. And use this analogy. I'm going to ask Sachi and Amaya. They're going to come up. And for the others of you who may want to fly a kite, um, this guy did it indoors. I found a picture of someone actually doing it. I don't, know. I, I don't know if there's a huge thing there. But come on up. Let's see if we can actually fly a kite indoors. Now, what does a kite need to fly Lift, air, right? Okay, so the fans are going to provide that. Now, a kite actually, we hope. <laughs> she doesn't sound so confident. Okay, let's go full bore. So, Sachi, do you, you guys both want to try or you want yeah, to? Okay, I'll let you guys. Now, a kite actually needs more than just air. There's something else it needs. So let nah, What's that? Running? Uh, running? Well, that would be the same thing as air, right? It wouldn't need... Okay, let's see how far you can get that kite out. A kite actually needs connectedness, right? A kite needs something to be connected to. So, Sachi, so see if you can get your kite, kite up there. Oh, as, I like how you just let your daughter struggle and... <laughs> Come on! Get it up there! Don't worry about yourself. Worry about yourself. <laughs> All right. Is it is? Would it help if we... Ah! Oh, but I need your kite to, in front of this. Would it help if we tilt the air more? Now, what happens? A kite will fly, but what happens if you disconnect it? No, well, don't do it. I'm going to do it. As i got to prove my point. We know, a kite needs two things. You can can turn the fan off. It needs air, but it needs to be connected. As soon as that kite rips out, and you know, you can picture yourself out in the park, right? You get your kite 100 feet up in the air, and all of a sudden the the string breaks, and the kite will fly for a little bit, and then it'll crash. A kite cannot fly without being connected. See, it's only flying because it's connected to a Maya. And it will only fly for as long as a Maya can run in circles like that. (laughs) Once she tires, and Sachi, yeah, you got more string. Sorry. To, I didn't want to cut your daughters, so it's so like, you, you guys can fix it. Let's give them a hand. Let's see, if, let's see if after the service we can get some kites higher than that. So those of you who built your kites, we'll power up the fans again, and uh, let's see how high we can get them or how far out we can get them. Just an illustration to say, this is where the king is at. The king has decided that in his life, he no longer needs to be connected. He has decided it's time to cut the cord because this isn't working. I think I can do better. I think I need to do better. I'm going to do better. And so the king steps out and he cuts that line all together that connects him to God. And he takes matters into his own hands, and he uh, initiates the blame game. Look at verse 31. This is the king talking. May God strike me and even kill me if I don't separate Elijah's head from his shoulders this very day, the king vowed. Now, Elisha was sitting in his house with the elders of Israel when the king sent a messenger to summon him. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, A murderer has sent a man to cut off my head. When he arrives, keep the door closed, keep him out. We'll soon hear the master steps following behind him. When Elijah was still saying all this, the messenger arrived and then the king. And the king said, all this misery is from God. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? It's cutting the string. The breaking points come for the king. And he says, Elisha, it's your fault. So let's read between the lines a little bit as we think back to the previous times that the the Arameans tried to attack the Israelites. Elisha was the the warning signal. He would tell the king, hey, this is what's going to happen. Be on guard. That kind of thing. And we can imagine that in this situation, Elisha would have again come to the king and said, we're going to be under attack. But be patient. Wait on God. He'll take care of us. Trust in him. I'm sure that's the message Elisha would have communicated. And now the king has come to the end of his rope and said, nope, this is your fault. And he says, I can't wait. I cannot wait any longer. And so he simply does what a lot of people in authority do and calculate what's happened, what's happened to my my authority as the king, what's happened to my ability to lead these people, take care of these people, be their king. And he looks at Elisha. And remember that previously, the king had the opportunity to wipe out the whole Aramean army, right? Remember when they were blinded and they were led into captivity? And then their eyes were opened up. This is one of the sermons that we had earlier in in the summer. And at that time, they said, hey, should we kill them all? And Elisha says, no, no. We don't do that. Feed them and send them out in peace. And you can only imagine what the king's thinking at this point. I could have avoided all this if I hadn't listened to Elisha. So off with Elisha's head. I'm not waiting any longer. Time to take action. My action. Have you ever been at that place? Not necessarily where you want to take off someone's head. Oh, well, you may have been. Figuratively speaking. But at that place where you say, "You know what? God's way is not working for me. I can't do this any longer." I need to take action. I know that I can do better than this. And so I will take matters into my own hands. Have you ever been in that place? Or maybe maybe you have waited and waited. You've, you've been praying and you've got other people praying. You're reading scripture and trying to find, and all you hear is silence. And day after day and week after week, and maybe year after year, that silence just gets so loud that you can't handle it anymore. Well, if that's where you are, then you're not alone. Then you're in the same place as people like the woman who ate her own son. Like Eve. Like anybody else in history who has come to that place and said, I give up, God. I give up on you, I give up on waiting on you. I give up on trying to do it your way. My way's going to be better. Sorry to associate us with that woman. But if we are honest and we look deep into who we are and we examine our human nature, we know our selfishness. We know our egos. We know. That there are depths to the depravity of our humanity that are so ugly that we don't want to ever go there. But they're there. And when we hit those places where we think I can do better than what God can do, we tend to be headed in the direction of those dark places of our human spirit, of our human nature. And then we end up cutting that string, like Bruxy Cavey talked about. We want to be that kite that says, screw it, I don't want to be connected, I, don't want, I, I can do this better on my own. And we, we, we yank ourselves out of being connected with God and say, my way is going to be better. Now, what does God do when we make that break from him? Chapter seven, Elisha replies to the king. Listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. And you'd be thinking, because I know what I would do if someone, you know, like, if you think of putting yourself in a parent situation, kid wants to break free and says, that's it, Dad. I don't want to do it your way. My way's better. I'm leaving town. I'm getting moving out. Well, our immediate reaction tends to be to get our hackles up and maybe respond eye for an eye. Fine, if you want to be like that, I'm going to do this. Or what does God do? By this time tomorrow in the markets of Samaria, six quarts of choice flour will cost only one piece of silver. Remember how much the head of a donkey cost? Remember how much a cup of dove's dung cost? way more than that, and 12 quarts of barley grain will cost only one piece of silver. Now the officer assisting the king said to the man, said to Elisha, that couldn't happen even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. Like even if he rains down manna from on high, that's not going to happen. Impossible. But Elisha replied, you're going to see it happen with your own eyes, but you won't be able to eat any of it. You see, Elisha's unfazed by the circumstances. He's still connected to God. And he responds with this prophecy that within 24 hours, the entire landscape is going to change. Everything is going to change. And two things strike me about the prophecy. One, what my gut reaction I just described for you would have been that you lash out against me, I'm going to lash out against you. God doesn't do that. You don't have any hope in me? Fine, I'll show you. He doesn't respond that way. But he does enter into that place where humanity is at his lowest, darkest, ugliest place. And says, I care. I will take care of this. I will intervene. And the other thing that strikes me about the prophecy is that God's not restricted by time. I think the thing that, that astounds the officer is that this is gonna happen in 24 hours. Like not humanly possible, it's not gonna, like this Aramean army has been camped around us for weeks and months. And now, all of a sudden, it's gonna change? And it's his lack of faith in God's ability to have mercy and to provide according to his timing, in his ways, miraculously, that gets him his immediate response. No, you're going to see it happen, but you're not going to get to participate in it. Friends, when we have real challenges in life, how patient are we? One of the words that we don't use a lot to describe ourselves anymore in our society is perseverance. Because there's not a lot that we have to persevere through. But we do need it as a characteristic to be God's people. In James, he says, Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work in you so that you will be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Romans 5, Paul says, We take glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And what does perseverance produce? It produces character. And what does character produce? This is the ultimate goal, hope. And that hope never disappoints us. Because it's a hope that's based not on us and our ability to do things or on our power, but a hope that's built into a belief in a God who can do the miracle built into the God who is not bound and limited by my time frame. So friends, don't be like that officer. No matter what your circumstances like, don't go to that place where you spit in God's face, where you mock him and say, "Not even you, God, can take care of this." Don't go there. Beware of that doubt that lies deep within your human spirit that depraved part of our nature. It can so easily come up when we're faced with struggle and challenge and trials, especially in the quiet when we're isolated, alone, at home, at night, and all we can think about and we don't have other people to talk to us and encourage us and pray with us. In those places, it's so easy to go to that place and say, you know what? I give up. God, you can't even take care of this. Always remember that he can. Always remember that he is at work. That he will intervene. And it's according to his ways and his timing. Nothing's impossible for him. Let's see how he does it here. It's again, probably not how you and I would do it. Verse 3, chapter 7. There were four men with leprosy sitting at the entrance of the city gates. Okay, so right there. He's going to use four guys who are lepers. If you're in your worst, worst, most challenging, stressful time in life, what are the odds that you're going to go to the local hospital, Langley Memorial, and say, I would like four of your sickest people to help me? Probably not. Again, God starts in these strange places. So these four lepers are sitting outside the gates because they're not even allowed inside the gates because they're lepers, and they're talking, and they say, why should we sit here waiting to die? We're going to starve if we stay here, but with the famine in the city, we'll starve if we, if we try to go back there. So we may as well go out and surrender to the Aramean army. Now, if they let us live, that's way better. If they kill us, well, we would have died anyways. So, at twilight, they set, set out for the camp of the Arameans. But when they come to the edge of the camp, no one was there. The Lord had caused the Aramean army to hear the clatter of speeding chariots and the galloping of horses and the sounds of a great army approaching. The king of Israel has hired the Hittites and the Egyptians to attack us, they cried to one another. And so they panic. In the middle of the night, they run, abandoning their tents, their horses, their donkeys, everything, and they flee for their lives. And when the men with leprosy arrive at the edge of the camp, they go into one tent after the other and they eat and they drink and they party and they celebrate and they carry off silver and gold and clothing and they hide it. They are now the wealthiest people in the nation of Israel. (laughs) It's crazy. You you remember when God was going to bring victory at Jericho in the Old Testament? What does he do? go ahead, march around the city, walk around it, seven days. And then I want everybody to just yell and blow your trumpets. Oh yeah, that'll work. Yeah, that'll work. Do you remember when he needed to take out the Midianite army of 120,000? And he just kept whittling down and then there's 300 left. And he uses them to shine their lights. Isn't that what they did? They just shine their lights and... They defeat this incredible army. And now you've got this scene. The king is powerless, he can't do anything. And in the middle of the night, this Aramean army that has been camped around the city for months hears sounds ooh, spooky sounds. Sounds like there's a whole army. No, it sounds like there's two armies. It sounds like the Egyptians and the Hittites. Oh, that king, he's finally figured it out. If he hires these other armies to come and take us out, what do we do? We should fight. No, let's just get, let's just run. Let's get out of here. How does that happen? How does does a strategic, well-placed, obviously well-led army who's got the upper hand, like it's only a matter of time, overnight. Hightail it and run. For, like, like they didn't even pack up their stuff. That's how scared they were. They just ran. Friends, God always makes a way. And it's never like we think it would be. His ways are not our ways. I like uh, Rick Warren saying, God always uses imperfect people. Because there's no perfect people in imperfect situations, because there's no such thing as a perfect situation to accomplish what? His perfect will. Proverbs 19, you can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. Now, the lepers didn't know that they were actually doing God's work, they didn't know that they were in the center of His will. They didn't know that they were the imperfect people in an imperfect situation. I mean, they had given themselves up for dead, right? We're gonna die, so let's just march to this uh, offending army and uh, if by chance they don't kill us, well, that's better than what's gonna happen here. So that's, I mean, that's the most imperfect situation and yet he uses them as a means of bringing food and deliverance to the entire nation. God was using them. Verse nine, finally, the lepers say to each other, like God's not even done with them yet, right? They're partying and they're looting and hi- hiding stuff. And, and then all of a sudden something clicks and it says, "Oh, well, hold on, this isn't right. This is so good that maybe we should tell the, oh, oh yeah, there's a whole nation starving behind the walls. Maybe we should let them in on some of this. And so they Go back, and they tell the people at the palace. Verse 10. So they went back to the city. They told the gatekeepers what happened. We went out to the Aramean camp. No one was there. The horses and the donkeys are still tethered. The tents are in order, but there wasn't a single person around. And the gatekeepers shouted the news to the people in the palace. The king got out of bed in the middle of night, and he said to his officers, because he's cunning, right? He's thinking, I know what's happened. The Arameans know we're starving, so they've left their camp. They've hidden in the fields. They're expecting us to leave the city like a bunch of idiots, and then they'll take us alive and capture our city. One of his officers replies, maybe, but maybe not. So why don't we send some scouts to check into this? Let them take five of the remaining horses that we've gotten that we haven't eaten yet, and if something happens to them, so what? We're no worse off than if they stay here and die with the rest of us of starvation. So two chariots and horses prepared. The king sends out scouts to see what happens to the Aramean army. They go all the way out to the Jordan river following, I love this, a trail of clothing and equipment that the Arameans had thrown away in their mad rush to escape. I mean, these guys were scared out of their wits. It's a, It's a hilarious scene of how God uses or what God does to bring about the relief for his people. The scouts return. They tell the king about what they saw. And then the people of Samaria rush out and they plunder the Aramean camp. And so it was true that, as Elijah prophesied, six quarts of choice flour sold that day for one piece of silver. Twelve quarts of barley grain were sold for uh, one piece of silver, just as the Lord had promised. The king appoints the officer. Remember the guy he sent ahead? and. And the one who said, yeah, not even God is going to do this. The king appoints that guy to be uh, traffic control at the gate. You make sure that everybody goes orderly. What happens to him? He gets knocked down. He gets trampled to death as the people rush out. And so the last of the verses simply say everything happened exactly the way 24 hours earlier